sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, rumor, innuendo, the things you have heard about, but you're not sure if they're true. We check them out for you. My name is Brian. And I am Murdoch, and super excited for yet another episode. Man, we've been having lots of fun lately. Dysfunctional super love excited. story recently. We tackled Fleetwood Mac. I think it's time to add another one to what could easily become an unofficial series, right? With the theme and process that usually ends up in this order. Make music together. Make yeah. love together and then make war together, right? <laughs> it seems to yeah. be how it ends. Yeah, uh, I, this is this is not as well known as the Fleetwood Mac story, but it it's fairly documented, and it's a love story that was once referred to by one of the people involved in it as "quote the great unresolved romance of the century." Man, so if you just want to know this sort of hyperbole that we are headed towards. <laughs> go um that's very intense billy but it does involve secrecy and sex and you know sort of emotional abuse and enough drama to send one of the parties spiraling into doing a whole lot of drugs which again sounds sort of familiar when tacked back uh next to the fleetwood mac episode so i guess those are the right ingredients uh sex and drugs uh so let's start with a boy named john john was born into a london boys home uh, and was adopted out of it when he was six months old. So like an wow. orphanage. Yeah. We're dealing with an orphan. He, Interesting. He, he got into music at a young age, uh, fiddled around on the piano. But then, as these stories often start, at 13, uh, he discovered his older brother's drum set that was left behind when that older adopted brother left the house. And so he formed his first band in high school. And they called themselves Pig Williams. Now, the other guy in this band was a guy named Nick Feldman. And Nick Feldman would later go on to start a band called Wang Chung. <laughs> oh, so. my God. Real quick, real quick, because, you know, I'm ready to go left to Albuquerque. Um, I was in this terrible band called Sing Sara. That was the name of the band. Sing Sara or Sing Sorrow? Yeah. Is Sara. It was like S-A-R-R-A. Okay. So I, okay. Not in charge. Well, okay. Yeah, what's the origin of that name? Um, I think my ex's ex came up with it, who was in our band. That oh, happened. that's always good. When, when the ex's ex is there, yeah, when you have to start differentiating with apostrophes, who, who, the the possessiveness of the exes, it gets complicated. Okay, yeah. go ahead. I think, I'm pretty sure that happened. I remember being at practice, and I'm even killed guy, and I love to play, but I remember one day just like exploding on his ass, because I was <laughs> like, you know, dude, like, this is pretty simple. Like, just, you know, it's like, just follow the paint by numbers. There's no yeah, reason well. to try to get complicated with this bullshit that we're doing here. But we had a keyboard player. And so that was a whole mind mess for me. And so we had this gig and it was at a place way too hip for us. And we were way terrible for that room. And one of my interns, Corey came and afterwards I said, Oh, so what'd you think? And he goes, kind of sounded like Wang Chung. <laughs> and that, that ruined, that ruined that band for me. Imagine being in a rock band. <laughs> and an intern from your work comes and goes, sounds like Wang Chung. Listen, Dance All Days is incredibly underrated. Oh, and it's in Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks. It's in a great spot of that movie. So anyway, so so Nick started Wang Chung. 
Yeah, so Nick was in Wang Chuck, and he's in this other band with John. And I, I tell this story mostly to sort of point out the interconnectedness of what we're about to get into. There's a lot of these, this guy knew this guy who knew this guy, and this guy knew this guy, and then he had auditioned for this band sort of stuff that happens. And it makes you think that like all of Britain's music scene was just like within three blocks of each other, because it's all very interconnected. Yeah. But in his late teens, while he's holding down odd jobs, John gets an audition for a band looking for a drummer. Now, that doesn't work out. They just don't mesh. But this is to my point of what I just said. That band goes on to be The Clash. <laughs> oh, and that John didn't make. Okay. John didn't make it into The Clash. John feels better in a band he joins called London. Now, London does all right. They put out some tunes on MCA. They tour hardcore for a while with the Stranglers. Um, and here's another funny side note about the interconnection. Henry Padovani auditioned for London, but ended up passing because a guy called him and offered him a guitar spot in another project that this other guy was working on. And that other guy who called him was Stuart Copeland. Oh, and interesting. so Henry Padovani, I don't know how much you know about the police, but Henry Padovani is actually the guitar player when they recruit Andy Summers. Oh, wow. And I've seen Andy Summers so- solo, by the way. Really? What a, yeah. What was yeah. that like? Freaking amazing. Well, and it was 20 years ago, and he was using uh, loops and stuff then. So it was just far out. And I have to ask, because we have to get there, because Troy, our super fan, is listening. Are you talking about London, the band from the Sunset Strip? London, the band that Nikki Six was in? Are we talking about a no. different band? No, we're talking about a different band. <laughs> and I appreciate we're a band that from England. We're talking about a band from another continent than the band from Los Angeles. I want you to know that I already have a way to connect this to Motley Crue at the end, very, very briefly. So yeah. I'd already done that mathematics to get us to, to a Nikki Six reference, but I yeah. appreciate that you did it in the first 10 minutes. That's nice. I mean, we, we could have talked about how they've re- received the most popular votes at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where people are letting fans vote who needs to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Motley Crue is the number one like vote getter really? right, ahead of, right ahead of Iron Maiden. I'm, I'm going to give you two minutes to defend why Motley Crue should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm not going to defend that at all. I'm going to tell you why, again, like anybody else would say the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a big, you know, uh, whatever, piece of garbage. Okay. They listed the t- top 20 okay. of people who had voted. And in that top 20, Weird Al was in it. Yeah. That was a weird thing. And let me tell you who wasn't in it. It's a band called The Pixies. No Pixies, no deal for me. I'm not interested in watching hmm. another telecast of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame okay. until they put the Pixies in. Because I'm like... Really, man? Okay. You let Nirvana in. Black Francis. Give me Black Francis. I'm with you. Just, I mean, the influence is so powerful. It really is. I mean, especially when you start to look at Nirvana and then what happens. You know, they sort of, they get a short shrift because Nirvana gets a lot of credit for stuff that the Pixies help start. They sell records. So anyway, so John is in London. The other London. Yeah. And the other London breaks up in 77. And our boy John finds himself a new musical job with a band called The Damned. Oh, how exciting. 
steps in for Ratscapies. So that's how that works. Ratscapies steps out, he steps in. Wow. Okay. This is great. And then okay. he eventually starts a different band. Again, I'm talking about the interconnectedness of this scene, man. He starts a different band with Lou Edmonds, who was in the damned with him. And that band is called The Edge, and they only last like a year. And he gets under contract with this group called Jane Eyre. They spell it, which I think is hilarious. A I R E. And yeah. Jane yeah. Eyre and the Belvedere's. Do you remember this band? Yes. So he gets under contract with Jane Eyre and the Belvedere's, but then he gets a call from Adam Ant, and Adam Ant wants him to, or he gets some, some, somehow he gets connected, and they're like, "Hey, we need you to step in and play on this record." Oh. And he can't do it contractually, so he has to do it under a pseudonym. So yeah. there's actually a Adam Ant record that has John playing on it and he's I forget what he's credited as but he's credited as something ridiculous because he can't be credited as himself so this is an important juncture and I bring up Adam Ant specifically because it helps us make a jump a jump across sort of musical and cultural movements so up to this point we're talking about the clash we're talking about London we're talking about the damned we're talking about punk rock acts yeah, and now we're talking about don't drink, don't smoke. What do, do you, you do? do? Don't, don't drink, drink, don't smoke. smoke. Oh, what do you do? Um, yeah. I remember I like, like sort of vaguely thinking that was a Christian rock song when I heard it the first time because of where I grew up, and I was like, yeah, I don't drink or don't smoke. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah, I knew when I heard uh, Strip the first time that I could feel the foreshadowing of what that song was really going to be like when I got older. That yeah. song wasn't a Christian song, No, by the way, no, but. not at all. Uh, Adam Ant was part of a scene, well, sort of part of a scene, he never wanted to own it, um, that had grown up in these these past few years okay we're zooming in on the late 70s early 80s and in this time specifically in london not the band but in london the city the scene that had taken a lot of inspiration from a couple of guys who you and i love and hold close to our musical hearts uh david bowie a guy we spent a lot of time talking about on the show and mark bolin of t-rex and i'm Uh. i'll tell you I've been trying to find a reason to do a T-Rex episode for a long time, and I'm not quite there yet, but hopefully it'll happen one day. Um, So David Bowie, Mark Bolin, and then they mash it up with this idea of the romantic period of the late 18th century. And it becomes known as the New Romantics. This is from a BBC documentary. Some called it the cult with no name, while others branded them peacock punks or blitz kids. Don't you ever, don't you ever with their pretty boy makeup and Byronic good looks, these princes of pop would go down in history as the new romantics. I gotta say, peacock punk is my favorite version of name for this movement. Uh, but if you remember what Adam Ant looked like yeah, at this period... Right. You know what you know what I'm talking about with the, the hair yeah. and stuff. Yeah, there was a fashion thing that was more that was central to the imaging about the whole marketing of him. Oh, and in terms of style, this whole scene rejects the anti-fashion ideas of punk, right? So remember, I mean, you know, Hugh and I love punk. We love classic punk, but you know, there's that. We all knew that person in high school who was like, "I'm punk," and they were like piercing their ears with safety pins, right? It's like. <laughs> It's yeah. like very much like not about commercial sense, right? It's it's very anti that. And so this is like a, a hard, hard 180 from 
this scene that John had come from that was very much DIY, and all of a sudden now you have both sexes being androgynous and wearing eyeliner and using lipstick. We think about glam, but we kind of forget what happens to glam once it hits the 80s. And this is what sort of happens, especially in London. And it started out of this club. You heard in that clip, she calls the she says Blitz Kids. There was this club in London called the Blitz. And this is like actually where the movement was born. But as it expanded, it got those new names, Peacock Punk, which I love, and eventually uh, New Romantics. And it becomes clearly associated with music, even though it's not a, really a musical movement, right? It's a fashion movement. So, so how does a fashion movement become a musical movement? And again, I think we can point our fingers at something that I basically like, I'm just going to start dropping this into the outline of every episode because we say it every time. It's like, basically, you can blame the advent of MTV. But I do think there's something there, right? Because suddenly, sure. all these groups have a visual. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you needed it. Um, you know, it's like bands like the Jay Giles band who like <laughs> didn't have an image. Right, right, right. right. Are, we're we're not going to break big like Duran Duran was. Greg Kinn Band, the Greg Kinn Band, <laughs> our loves in jeopardy, um, baby. So if you didn't have a a look, um, MTV could ruin it for you. So like if Foghat like was trying to break you know an eighty one or eighty two, it might be kind of tough because you know those that that's when dudes just look like ugly dudes playing rock and roll. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is so much about timing, right? I mean, we talk about this in business and in culture and in everything else, right? Timing. But at this point, and this is, we talked about this when we talked about Dylan, right? Like Dylan was at this weird crossroads and he was forced to do music videos. And here's a guy who's definitely not had to depend on what he looked like for most of his career. So yeah, Adam Ant never wanted to be called part of the new romantic movement, but he did often get pushed into that category. And it's sometime around this period where John Moss, is moonlighting. That's his last name. I don't think I've said it yet. His last name is Moss. John Moss oh. is, is moonlighting. Stop it if you know. I just maybe gave it away. I'm uh, just going to not say anything. Keep going. He's moonlighting with the goody two-shoes god, Adam Ant, and he gets a call from a guy who's trying to start a band and needs a drummer. And there's different versions of this story that I ran across in the research. Some of them were like they were connected by a friend, like John Moss, and knew somebody who said, hey, you should meet this person, blah, 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 blah. But there is a, there is directly from the person I'm about to introduce into the story, there is an interview where he says that when he was a teenager, he's, he's a little bit younger than John Moss, and he had been dating a guy who was doing a magazine pre-MTV that was about, uh, it was like a teen beat type of thing. This guy had a picture in the middle of the magazine for one issue that was John Moss from London. And he always sort of had a crush on him. And and the guy on the other end of the phone who calls John Moss and says, Hey, I need a drummer for my new musical project is a guy named George O'Dowd. Have you ever gone to, have you thought about concerts recently where you can't remember who you went with? Yes. So I saw this band that these two guys were in at Radio City Music Hall very later, like in the 90s, I guess, late 90s. Um, and I couldn't tell you who I saw that with, but it was amazing. George had gotten a lot of attention for hanging out at that club, The Blitz, right? It's where the Blitz kids were born. It's where the new romantic movement took off. And this had gotten him some early heat in the music business. And not so much for talent 
He has talent, but not so much for his talent as for his looks. Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren. And this is so funny to me because Malcolm McLaren chapter one is Sex Pistols. Chapter two is him seeing George as a business and, and, and as an aesthetic overhaul to boring British pop music. So he takes him and he inserts him into a band he's been working with called Bow Wow Wow. And they give him a name. They call him Lieutenant Lush. Now, <laughs> there's a big problem with this maneuver. Do you know what the problem is with inserting Lieutenant Lush into Bow Wow Wow? They were all women, right? They weren't all women, but they already had a woman lead singer. Oh, and, okay. And not only did they already have a lead singer, she's a 15-year-old girl. Oh, that's troublesome. So this is a fascinating side note, and we, we have to go down Bow Wow Wow territory for a moment. Born out of some puppet mastering done by McLaren, he convinces a few members of Adam and the Ants to defect and start a different group. And a session musician tells McLaren about, at that time, a 13-year-old girl that he'd heard sing. And they audition Annabella for this band. And they like her so much, they actually get her transferred to a performing arts school. And then the band gets signed to EMI. Gosh, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. A little trivia you didn't think you were going to learn today. The first Bow Wow Wow single is the first cassette-only single ever released. Wow. That's crazy. No vinyl. And it, was it I Want Candy? No. Here's the best part. It was a different one. Here's the best part. (laughs) EMI didn't want to promote it because the lyrics (laughs) were about, the lyrics were about taping songs off the radio. And that was too controversial for EMI to push to radio because it was cutting into their bottom line of selling singles, which they only put out on cassette for this song about taping over the cassette and taping stuff off the radio. Uh, The irony you cannot make up. So that's so crazy. Okay. They put the, this is what they did. And I don't know. I mean, as much as EMI didn't like it, they let them do this. So Bow Wow Wow and McLaren put the A side and the B side on the same side of the cassette so that listeners can use the other side to tape stuff. Excellent. Which what, is a, awesome. what a great idea. Yeah, what a great idea. Awesome. It's like it's very ahead of its time, that idea. So it's, it it is. It like I think that's ahead of now. Maybe and maybe ahead <laughs> of the dead Kennedys when they had that cassette where it, oh, yeah. it was like this side is left intentionally blank so that you can record music on. I think that's I think Bow Wow Wow was predates that, maybe if that's like eighty three. This is maybe. early eighties. This is before eighty three. I want to say this is 80, 81, 80, maybe 82, but it's early. So it's around the same time. As you might see. As you might imagine, a grown man dressing very glam, hanging on stage with this band that already has a teenage girl lead singer, doesn't really mesh. And Malcolm has to fire George O'Dowd before they get started. And that's when he starts working on this other band idea. And he's calling it at the time in praise of lemmings, (laughs) which is like the worst ever it's so bad but it's also so melancholy like the idea of like let's celebrate animals that kill themselves um yeah oh man it's like why didn't morrissey and johnny marr pick that name anyway right and so when that's immediately where my mind went so when john moss gets this call he gets to officially meet boy george Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. 
P-A-I-R, Pair. Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features. It includes drag-and-drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART, to get started today. So when John Moss gets this call, the first order of business is Moss saying, I'm not going to be in a band called Impraise of Lemmings. So they come up with another name they try on, which is equally as bad, but in the opposite direction. Sex gang children. Statler Brothers? Sex gang children? Sex gang children. Um, Wow. Yeah. I wonder why that didn't test well with the kids or whoever. And and so then John like looks around the room at the rest of the band, because at this point, Boy George has rounded the band out with bassist Mikey Craig and guitarist Roy Hay. And John points out that altogether, they're like pretty diverse looking. And he mm, says, yeah. it's almost like we're a culture club. And that's that's where they get the name. That's like, look at this motley looking crew. I brought it full circle already. <laughs> I, dude, I, I'm telling you, I've got one Easter egg hidden at the end. Please right. let us get there. Um, yeah. and, and so now we come to what, as I mentioned earlier, was once referred to as Boy George, who it, now you understand the dramatics. Uh, he once called it, quote, the great unresolved romance of the century. And that romance starts almost immediately between Boy George and John Moss. They're both on record saying it was basically love at first sight. And the story is that John was engaged to be married to a woman. You see interviews with him, and he just says, George was a space alien. He's like, this person was unlike anything I'd ever encountered before. So Virgin Records signs the band in 1981, and they try a couple of singles that don't really work. But in 82, they get a break. Now, I don't, I had never heard of Shaken Stevens, but Shaken Stevens, who I believe might be a blues act, is scheduled to be on top of the pops and he gets sick and he can't make it. Wow. This is really hot. This is the thing. Culture club gets his spot. And this is where it explodes because this is boy George getting on television. And yeah. this, this is what needed to happen. And this is what Malcolm McLaren always knew needed to happen. Right? Because it's not really about the songs, even though the songs are good. I'm not disparaging culture club because good songs, but it's about the visual. And you know, even now, I think it's interesting. We talk so much about diversity in, in sort of day-to-day conversation now, you know, culturally and, and even in businesses and all that sort of stuff. And Culture Club really did. Like, there was a black guy. There's there was a, a Jewish ad. guy. There was a there was a guy who was dressed as a woman. Like, you know, I mean, it was it the visual of it in 2022, I think, is striking, let alone in yeah. 1982. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it, it was, I mean... That was, they were made for MTV, man. They sure were. Well, and this is what happens, right? After everybody sees that, there's a question everyone's asking. 
And it's literally, is that a man or is that a woman? Yeah. <laughs> right? It and was- that's that's all they needed. The person wearing the makeup. <laughs> of course, the song, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? It goes number one yeah. in 27 countries and number two in the U.S. And this is Boy George talking about that song. Okay? Quote, I thought the song was too personal to be a hit, and I didn't want it to be a single. I went to Virgin, I stomped my feet, and I sat on the stairs and said, you're going to ruin our career before we even start. Our audience needs something to dance to, and do you really want to hurt me is too slow, too personal, and too long, and everything about it's wrong. So, and then he, he ends the statement with, so... Its success was a big education for me. (laughs) And I I learned that being personal was the key to touching people. Yeah, yeah. But and what a great I mean, and the song has the song has a legacy that has extended past the band where people know that song and don't know who the band is. Oh, for sure. And I'm embarrassed to admit that my first real encounter with that song was when it's quasi parodied with the quasi-parody Boy George character in The Wedding Singer? Oh, my gosh. Really? Holy cow, Okay, Ryan. yeah, but put I this am, on a... I am 85 years old. Like, I remember listening to these songs on the radio when there was, like, the countdown continues on Casey Kasem's <laughs> Top 40 Countdown. Coming in at number 37. Like, I, I heard I know, all that. But if I had had access to this sort of thing at a younger age, I would have found it. But here's the deal. Adam Sandler movies... I mean, that movie came out in, what, 98? So... I guess. It's I, 90s, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm 15, and I'm sneaking the Adam Sandler movies into the house. And, that, of course, Wedding Singer is still in my probably top five movies of all time. And it really was an education for me on a lot of music from that period because I just had a gap there. I was listening to stuff from the 60s and 70s with my dad, but I hadn't really gotten into that section of the 80s. So, as I said, a little bit embarrassing, but worth mentioning. And here's an interesting thing we need to talk about. He said it was too personal, right? He said this song is too personal. If the song's too personal, what's it about? Yeah, right. Is it about John or is it about someone else? Great question. And it depends on when you ask, Boy George. I found interviews where it's stated that this and every song is about John, where George basically says that. And then I found interviews where George says it's not about John. And John is flattering himself thinking it's about him. But it's pretty clear most of Culture Club and their, their lyrical content and their music is a live feed into that relationship. Gosh, man. It's like Buckingham, Knicks. It, re- so it really is. And that's why I wanted to put these two episodes around each other, because yeah. I think there is actually a template for this in the Fleetwood Mac story. And when I was working on this, it was actually, I actually had been working on this longer than the Fleetwood Mac piece. But as I got through this, I was like, we, I got to go back and do Mac because Mac is going to set the scene for this story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Truly. And it's the, it's more famous because they sold a kabillion records. Right, right. Uh, this is a Boy George quote. Quote, all of the early songs are about John. See, I told you, at a certain point he admitted it. I literally wrote about a relationship as it happened. The first album, Kissing to be Clever, I mean, mm-hmm. the title was about John. What are you? What do you? What do you want from me? Why are you sleeping with me if you're so confused about what you are? End quote. So that's what's happening, right? So that puts it very succinctly. John wants to stay in George's bed, but he's not entirely done with women, and he keeps coming back to George and then going back to female flings. And all the while, the band is having crazy success. So Kissing to be Clever, you know that record? 
Yeah, I sure do. I owned it on vinyl. Um, it features not just Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? It also has I'll Tumble For Ya. Yeah. Dan, 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 dan. Yeah. It has, it has Time, Clock of the Heart. Which is my favorite. Is it? Okay. Uh, yeah. And it makes Culture Club. I, here's another fun trivia thing you may or may not know. It makes Culture Club the first act since the Beatles to have three top ten hits in the U.S. from a debut. What? Oh, that is so crazy. It really puts into perspective how famous they got famous really fast. Well, and that's the other thing. In doing this story, and in doing a lot of the episodes that we do, I find there's like perspective reminding that needs to happen, right? And context reminding. Like, we talk about, in shorthand, when when we talk about a decade, if we look at the 90s, we talk about Nirvana, and we talk about the Spice Girls and boy bands or whatever, right? As these big, big musical movements. And in the 80s, we talk about Madonna, and we talk about U2. And in the 70s, we talk, you know, I mean, you can go decade by decade and do that, right? But you miss these moments where they're brief. And the Culture Club moment is about three years. But those three years, yeah. Culture Club is giant but it overlaps with when phil collins and genesis are giant right which are very very different and so it's 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 nice to come back sometimes and like look and say the evidence is here this band made a giant impact and unfortunately some bands get to live with that and then other bands sort of become punchlines and i mean i you know you can make a case that boy george sort of does it to himself and we'll get into a little bit of that yeah. And and I and listen, so when those records so you heard Wedding Singer then you're 15. So I heard Kissing to be Clever and around that time I was 10 or 11. Right. And that was my sweet spot. Like the 83, 84, 85, like those were like amazing years of music. But then you're right because I remember there definitely was a perception and certainly some homophobia. Oh, for sure. Floated, floated around that, that didn't take them seriously when um, some of these songs are, are just tattooed on the pop culture consciousness uh, of amazing songs that are in the canon of amazing American, like they came in there. I mean, this is definitely an English band, but like I, you know, for me, it was like, that was a big part of my childhood. Oh yeah. I, the visual of that was really heavy and it was just super cool. And, um, I like the slow songs clearly. Boy George skirts the sexuality thing. And that's the thing that we sort of forget, right? People wanted to see boy George and he was cheeky. And he'd get asked about his sexuality, and he always had funny answers and quips, yeah. and people yeah. loved it. It's a great interview. But this all adds to another layer of tension on the band and on this relationship at its center. And the tension at the core of these two members inside this band is set to explode while the band is exploding in, in commercial success, right? There are crazy stories. Stories like George refusing to come out of his dressing room and John getting rags and dipping them in gasoline and shoving them under the door and lighting them. What the hell is that? Oh, my God. And the whole time, imagine being the other guys. Imagine being Mikey Craig and and thinking this band is going to break up at any moment while we are on the right of our lives. I'm just going to say John Moss is, Moss is gorgeous. I get it. But that's, <laughs> man, I got to watch part of Live Aid. I heard it on the radio because we were driving back from somewhere, and I heard Phil Collins 
sing in the air at night and forget part of the lyrics on the radio. Oh, yeah. That's how much I remember. Um, and then there was an interview with Boy George at Live Aid, and somehow that was where I very first was introduced to the fact the the idea of someone being on drugs. Mm. And, and and it was and he looked he he whatever the makeup like it looked like he had just a bunch of toothpaste and shit on his face mm-hmm. and he was and he was um incomprehensible you, you couldn't he there was no talking and that's what made it and i, I don't know if i turned to my mom or someone i mean that would be my mom and dad there's nobody else there someone explained to me that he was on drugs well and to add to the layers of tension on this band and on this relationship, right? I mean, they're, they're two very troubled people who are trying to have a relationship and trying to have a business together, which is going to be complicated regardless. And then on top of that, even George appears to be a little worried about actually admitting that he is gay publicly because it's 1982, 83. And John yeah. is definitely worried about outing the relationship. So th- this is the burning ember at the core of this whole experience. And, you know, I, I think everyone starts to realize there's no way this balance can maintain and culture club is just another one of these examples as we just mentioned of a band that got so big so fast that they're sort of like a supernova right they just cannot maintain for very long yeah the the next album is still killer though it gives us karma chameleon which of course is probably what most people know off the top of their heads and associate with them and then miss me blind remember that one oh sure man yeah those are the big five kind of yeah We've kind of hit all the five hits. But yeah, because by the time they get to the third record, everyone is just phoning it in. And if the band and songs were serving as life updates on John and George's relationship status, it only figures that as the relationship formally starts to disintegrate, the band starts to disintegrate. Now, George turns pretty quickly to drugs. You you mentioned this. You mentioned 85. By 87, George finds himself inside a wrongful death lawsuit. Uh, because a 27-year-old session keyboard player winds up dead in his apartment from an overdose. That's wow. how, that's how bad it gets. Uh, stinks. And obviously, a lot happens wow. from here. I mean, boy, George has a solo career. He becomes a DJ. He becomes a DJ. He does. I think I saw a DJ set of his, but I'm going to go ahead and say this for all our listeners. I don't really remember what was going on. <laughs> Keep going. In the early 2000s, he launches a musical and gets a Tony nomination. What? Uh, there's a fashion line. There's more weird court cases, including the time that he imprisons a Norwegian model. Oh, oh. Uh, that's a Norway. whole thing. We're not going to go there, but you can look it up and just put Norwegian model boy George, and you got stories. Um, but what happens? Wow. To, what happens to John? Uh, he sort of kicks around for the next thirty years. He, he's in a bunch of musical projects that never get super well known. Uh, there's a few random culture club reunion attempts, and even John tries to put the band out on tour with a different singer at one point, um, but that doesn't end up launching. In 2018, the band's original lineup does U.S. and European dates, but Moss disappears after the first leg, and the next anyone hears from him is with a lawsuit where he claims he was kicked out of the band. Wow. Still very unclear what actually happened. What is clear is that relationship is still pretty dysfunctional and john is now officially considered not part of culture club um as of last year oh really wow because they had done a couple of small reunions there was like 98 to 2000 they did one and and they both were in that and there was you know times where i wasn't engaged in that at all so i didn't know that 
he was at some point back in and now he's officially not in like like it's rat or something yeah yeah right um and while it wasn't known about at the time now as attitudes towards lgbtq rights have become much more accepting the john and george relationship really has become the thing of doom fate pop music lore right wow. uh, there, there was a movie on the bbc in 2010 called worried about the boy um douglas booth plays boy george in that movie and here's here's where it happens you know what other rock and roll movie douglas booth is known for being in no no i don't he plays nikki six in the dirt Oh, geez. <laughs> you know, right there oh, with MGK. Oh, man. Uh, um, what a, okay, so he plays Boy George, and then and then plays Nikki Six, and and that movie had some. You know, if you're a fan, you liked it, but for me, he was the the best, clearly the best actor in that that film for sure. It. Forget this movie. I mean, there are so many articles and documentaries now. There's uh, there's some good stuff in the show notes I should point out. There is a uh, some Tumblr page took and screenshotted most of the behind the music, especially the stuff in between John and Boy George, just quotes back and forth from their different perspectives, and you can just read it, uh, which is like really helpful and interesting. Um, there's I mentioned the documentaries. One in particular that I would suggest is called Smash. It's in the show notes. But despite all of that, the way you know that this sordid love story has really made an impact, really made an impact, there's fan fiction. <laughs> yes. Dude. I've never heard of this. It's called The Drummer's Boy. She just put up the first chapter, so you can go read chapter one. Now, because we try to keep this show somewhat family friendly, I'm not going to be able to get very far into this. Uh, because, man, let me just tell you, it gets real spicy real quick. I apologize for the first chapter being long and dirty, but I just wanted to capture everyone's attention. <laughs> Stay tuned for more. Uh, dun, 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 dun. Should I read this? It sounds fun. Uh, it was a clear, sunny summer day, George's favorite. It was a day of the promised positive mood with positive feelings. As George was doing his daily morning routine, a knock sounded on the door. George rushed to answer it, and in the doorway stood a tall man by the name of John Moss. Give me time. <laughs> I see it, man. She should, I hope that this fan fiction works out great. Oh, uh, he picked, I'm just skipping ahead like five paragraphs. He picked George up and carried him to the bed while still kissing him. They arrived at George's bedroom ah. and collapsed on the bed. George landed on his back, followed by John on top of him. Turn around, George. <laughs> oh my God. I'll stop there. I'm just the telling you, that's like five paragraphs in. You're, you're, you're getting fan. there very quickly. Let's, can we give a shout out to, to who wrote that, by yeah, the way? Mrs. Hosmer Horrors is the nope. username. She signs this as Zoe, shouts to Zoe, uh, and the amazing uh, Culture Club fan fiction. Thanks for bringing some hot past boy George <laughs> John Moss to our show. Right on. Okay. Oh, man. Uh, wow. So if you want to get involved in the show... Uh, or if you have fan fiction about any of our episodes, uh, feel free to send it over to us. We are the story guys at gmail.com. You can check out our website. We are the story guys.com. We have fun there. Um, what should people keep doing uh, until next time? It, well, if you're not writing fan fiction about George Jones, keep telling stories, everybody. <laughs> like George Jones fan fiction. It's just him getting wasted. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved. <laughs> George picked up the bottle of Jim Beam and then he opened it and that, put it to his lips the, and drank it. The bottle had a smooth physique like a woman. And then he felt the taste of vomit coming from his esophagus. <laughs> Let's cut this out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>